Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before. He's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from week 82 of quarantine from my eight-year-old son's bedroom at my palatial home in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting completely obstructed views of absolutely nothing. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, a writer who has enjoyed a varied and enviable career on stage, in print, and on camera, perhaps most notably as co-creator of its Gary Shandling show and as one of the original writers for Saturday Night Live. His latest book is the memoir Laugh Lines, My Life Helping Funny People Be Funnier, released earlier this year and on sale now as an audiobook. Hello and welcome, Alan Zweibel. How you doing, Mike? Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for uh, for coming by. This book is is right in my wheelhouse. First of all, I'm like everybody a big Saturday Night Live fan. I loved this Gary Shandling show, and I also love how it represents an era of show business that I feel like is a, a bygone era of show business. I love Borscht Belt, and I don't. I'm still not even really clear on what the Friars Club is. I just know I really like it. You know, it's interesting. Um... One of the reasons I wrote the book was because I, I realized that I may be one of the few, if not only, people who wrote for all these different eras of comedy over the last 45-ish years, starting with the, um, with the Borscht Belt, where I got $7 a joke writing for those comedians up there, uh, then SNL and Shanley, which was the first cable comedy uh, to be nominated for an Emmy, and the work I did with Billy Crystal on uh, Broadway. So, so it's been varied, and it's a lot of wonderful, very fruitful com- uh, collaborations. It, the Friars Club was part of the early years of my career, and I still belong to it, although it's not the same. What the Friars Club started out at the beginning of the ninth of the 20th century was a, a, a club for show business people, politicians, athletes, writers. It was an exclusive club made uh, only men um, where they can get away from the uh, gawkers, people who wanted autographs. It was a private club and it grew and it grew and then it became famous uh, when they started roasting people. It's now on 50. 50- Fifth Street between Park and Madison here in New York City, and uh, women are uh, are members, and it's uh, the, the composition has changed just a little bit because when show business left New York and went out to California, the club needed more money to survive. To survive, so there's a lot of dentists now. Okay, <laughs> you go there, you'll see more furriers than you want to, but it's uh, the history of the place is. Um, is pretty fantastic. You know, the roasts, um, there's memorabilia on the walls that date back to Al Jolson and go all through the years. And I remember I would go there for lunch and I would see different combinations of people like, um, oh God, uh, Maya Beam, who was about two feet tall, came in one day for lunch with Wilt Chamberlain, like 11, and I'm going, they came in together and they sat and they had lunch together and I'm 
dying trying to figure out what are they talking about, okay? So I just kept circling the table as discreetly as I can, but I picked up nothing. But it's a, um, it was a very, very fun kind of uh, fraternal place to be a member of. You would have thought it would have been hard for them to have a quiet conversation. Well, <laughs> well <laughs> you would think just by virtue of the fact that one head was so much higher than the other yeah. that he, they would both have to shout to be heard by the other one. Yeah, I love just the detail of where you're there and they bring you a phone for a phone call. I think it was Gary Shanling calling you. I've always wanted to be somewhere where someone might bring me a phone and I feel like I missed my window on that. Well, you know something, um, when I, it, it's, it was like a thing you used to see on the old I Love Lucy shows and some of those Danny Thomas, you know, make room for daddy shows where, hey, it's the coast. <laughs> I bring you a phone Yes, plug it in and um, whatever. Yeah, the Friars Club, uh, has uh, jacks in the wall where if somebody's calling you, you'd get paged and a uh, a waiter would come over, bring the phone to the table, plug it in. And in the p specific instance that you're talking about, it was somewhere after uh, I had left Saturday Night Live a couple of years later, I was in the Friars Club and I used to sit during lunch. There was a table a round table that I used to sit near because at that table were Milton Berle and, and Buddy Hackett and Alan King and Red Buttons, whoever was in town, all these old comics would sit there and bitch and moan about reviews that they got in vaudeville in 1932, okay? So I just found it fascinating. And I was sitting uh, at a banquet and uh, somebody came over with the phone and it was actually um, my manager at the time, who was also Gary Shanling's manager, calling me saying that Gary um, was about to do a special on Showtime. Uh, they needed, uh, uh, they wanted fresh eyes from another writer. And um, they sent me the script. I said, sure, let's uh, go for it. And we... Um, you know, that's how it started with Gary and myself. But yeah, it was a phone call that I got paged at and a phone came to my table at the Friars Club. Um, you've mentioned a bunch of uh, venerable names from comedy past. I find it interesting that I'm sure everybody who worked on Saturday Night Live uh, originally in the original cast had some degree of respect for the people who had come before them, but it so much was about a break from traditional comedy. You seem like the one person in that whole mix that was really, who was steeped in that tradition. Well, that's a great um, observation. You know, we were the children of that generation that you're talking about. The logo for the show in the early days was Saturday Night Live spray painted on the marble wall of the outside of what was then called the RCA building, which had NBC upstairs. So it was um, the counterculture. It, it was comedy about... Uh, what we were going through, the baby boomers, and it was a break from it. And it, to a degree, theirs was a brand of comedy that we rebelled against. It was very joke-oriented. There was a rhythm to it. There was, uh, and it was the culture that they spoke of and spoke from that we were parodying. That being said, while I don't remember if I was the only one, I can only speak for myself, I had a healthy respect from where I came, where my roots were, 
Um, I remember going to the Friars Club to, and just stopping by. It's only three or four blocks away from NBC where, you know, we, Saturday Night Live is in, in, in 30 Rock. And I would go there and see the comics that I used to write for. I used to sell them jokes at the bar downstairs for $7 a joke uh, before I got the job on SNL. I, I, there was something about grandpa and grandma, mom and dad about the place that um, no matter what I was doing, I still felt comfortable there, you know? Right. Well, maybe you just come from a good family. It seems to me like people who have something that they're trying to get away from maybe don't want to be reminded of that when they form their own sensibilities. If you're if you're raised in a nice, comfortable family, you can appreciate what you like and also appreciate where you come from. Well, well, that's a great observation because you know, my mind immediately. I used to go there with Gilda, and she used to love these old comics. Okay, and then when I uh, um, collaborated with Billy Crystal on uh, his Broadway show Seven Hundred Sundays which was by and large about that era because it was a love letter to his parents yes. and extended family, grandparents, aunts, uncles. They embodied that. And so um, it, 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 to a great extent, you're having fun within it as opposed to against it, okay? It, it's, it's homage to a great extent. So, yeah. Right. Well, Nobody has a more obvious affection for that era than, than Billy Crystal, so I, I get what you're yes. going for there. So you could have worked for Hollywood Squares. That probably would have been the safer bet. How, how much time have you spent thinking about how differently your career plays out if you had taken the safe bet and taken a job in Hollywood for, for Hollywood Squares? Oh, you know, <laughs> you know something? I don't harp on it, but when I was writing this book and I was up to that part where uh, I was – you know, got this job on this new show that would premiere in the fall called Saturday Night Live. And I remembered, it was very obvious to me, I had not forgotten that the very same week that Lorne gave me this job on this new show, I had gotten a job, was offered a job as a writer to write the questions and answers, bluff answers for Paul Lind, who was the center square on yes. Hollywood Squares. And like I say in the book, I thought about it for maybe a millisecond, you know, because I was slicing locks in a deli. And now all of a sudden I have to choose between two TV shows. But wait a second. And um, had I had I gone with the Hollywood Squares and I I would have probably become very good friends with Rosemary and, and you know, a Charlie Weaver and, you know, whoever was in the squares at the time, maybe I would have become friends. Maybe I would have written their Las Vegas acts. Let's play this through. If one of yep. them had a TV show, I would have written, you know, maybe for um, the Nipsey Russell hour, you know, something like that. And yep. I think that eventually, and I don't know how, how it would have played out, but I think I would have gotten very bored very quickly because the sense of humor, although I liked it and watched it and, and, and whatever, was the same reason I stopped writing for those guys up at the Catskill Mountains is because it was a different sensibility. So maybe when I got off the plane in L.A. to go to report to work on the first day, I would have said, what, 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 what am I doing? You know, so uh, I, it was a wise decision. Um, that would have been a quick burnout, I think. 
So you have this fateful meeting in, uh, I think you said it, if it was Catch a Rising Star with, with Lorne Michaels in a comedy club. Yeah, it was a showcase comedy club and I took all the jokes that those old guys wouldn't buy from me because they thought it was too hip for their crowd. Trust me, I'm not hip, <laughs> okay? But it was too hip. If you just said Watergate, they'll go, no, 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 my, my crowd doesn't uh, know about Watergate. Watergate, what do you mean? It's on every channel, you know? So <laughs> I'd start yelling at them. Yeah, so I took all the jokes they wouldn't buy from me and I got up on stage to Catch a Rising Star and recited the jokes. I never wanted to be a stand-up comic. And, um, uh, and the audience feedback they were pretty much also telling me, no, 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 you don't want to be a stand-up comic, you know. And, um, yeah, there was a night that I came off the stage after bombing, and uh, Lorne Michaels introduced himself. He was less than uh, uh, impressed, but liked the material. And um, I stayed up for two He wanted to see more. A, a William Morris agent uh, set up a meeting with Lorne, and I stayed up for two days straight and uh, typed up what I believed were like 1,100 of my best jokes, went back to the city for my meeting and handed him this tome with uh, 11, just about 1,100 jokes in it. And uh, he read one joke. He went, uh-huh. And he closed the book. And, um, you know, we spoke a little further. And um, I got a phone call two, three days later that I got this job, you know, and um, it, it was magic. It was just magical. You know, like I said before, I was working in a delicatessen to supplement this great living I was making, writing $7 jokes, you know. All my friends from college were in med school and law school, and they knew what they were going to be in a couple of years. And I'm sleeping in my old bed, <laughs> you know, my parents' house, and um, a whole new world opened up. I'm fascinated by Lorne Michaels. I feel like uh, from an, as an outsider, he's obviously incredibly charismatic, but the nature of his specific brand of charisma is kind of hard to put my finger on. I know he's a funny person because of Saturday Night Live and because of Three Amigos, et cetera, et cetera, but I don't know him to be someone who commands the room with jokes. Like, what is your scouting report on, on Lorne Michaels? He seems like he was born with clout. You even say in the show he had insisted on a multi-episode order for this show, which is great. I can insist on anything, but he got it. Uh, Lorne Michaels is one of the smartest people I ever met. Um, he's got an instinct which is um, second to none when it comes to assessing talent, when it comes to knowing who to put together. Like I say in the book, the first meeting, he said this is going to be a comedy variety show, which he then elaborated and said, which means it's going to be a variety of different kinds of comedy. And, um, you know, he got his street cred from Laughing and then Lily Tomlin specials, and uh, he worked with Python and uh, Richard Pryor. And um, he seemed like the perfect guy. I, I imagine when Dick Ebersol, who was, um, uh, you know, an executive, a late night executive NBC, would be the guy to come up with this new show that would um, basically replace the Johnny Carson reruns that used to be on Saturday nights. Uh, Lorne is incredibly funny, incredibly witty, incredibly, um, well, let's put it this way, it's understated. So, it, it, you know, uh, I, I, back then, 
and even now when I am with him, I lean in a little bit because he doesn't make it's not declarative, it's just there, you know, and um, uh, I admire that. You also, well, obviously you talk about in the book, the first meeting of, it seems like the writers came in for Saturday Night Live and you spent a little bit of time together and then the cast comes in and it's almost hard for those of us who weren't there to wrap our head around. This is like uh, when the Avengers first meet in the movies, except this is a thing that actually really happened. Can you describe what it was like being in the room? Belushi, Aykroyd, Gilda, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you got to understand that I didn't know anybody's name even after there was no recognition factor. So here I am let's say like July 9th, so it was July 7th, 1975, so it's exactly 45 years ago. And, um, and like I, you know, I, I was very familiar with the city. My dad worked uh, on 52nd Street between, Madis- between 5th and Madison, and I would run errands for him. And no matter where the errand went, as a little boy, I used to go by way of 30 Rock, because Johnny Carson had the Tonight Show, and... Uh, uh, there was a show called That Was the Week That Was that starred a guy named uh, Buck Henry and produced by another guy named Herb Sargent. And there were people in that building doing what I wanted to do someday. So now, fast forward 12-ish years, 13 years, whatever it was, I'm now reporting to work in that building as a comedy writer. And I go upstairs and we go to Lauren's office on the 17th floor and I'm looking around the room. and. I see, yeah, there's a bunch of writers, but I see Belushi and I see Aykroyd and uh, Lorraine Newman and Gilda. They're improving. I had never heard of Second City. I was a joke writer up in the Catskill Mountains. I, I never saw people create comedy in front of you, assuming characters and improving and building something where all of a sudden something exists that didn't exist a minute ago. And um, it was overwhelming. It was like, oh my God, is this what I'm gonna be a part of? And my, I was, it was gleeful, but at the same time I was, I couldn't do that. Where would my place be in this, you know? And I got a little spooked by it, but it was, um, it was eye-opening, and it was right there. And then I kept on going, "Gee, should I have taken Hollywood Squares?" I, I this huh. <laughs> very little improv involved I kept there. Going back and forth, you know. Um, uh, luckily, you made fast friends with Gilda Radner, and that was the start of a, a lifelong relationship. Um, in many ways, this book is a love letter to to Gilda. Can you talk a little bit about your relationship? Well, it's a love letter to Gilda. It's a love letter to Gary Shandling. It's a, it's yes. a love letter to anybody that I collaborated with, but uh, the Gilda part of it was, um, there was an instant uh, attraction there comedically where uh, we made each other laugh. She was from Detroit, came to New York by way of uh, Toronto. She was a little um, overwhelmed by New York and I'm, I'm from here. And so there was a uh, big sister, little brother thing that happened. Um, we made each other laugh, and we started writing together. And she uh, she made it very, very clear from the outset that this would be a platonic friendship, which um, I was less than pleased to hear about. Um, you know, 
and I brought it up many, many times. And um, in fact, I met my wife on the show. Robin was a production assistant who joined us the third year of the show. And Gilda was the biggest proponent, the biggest advocate for that relationship. A, because she thought Robin was good for me. And B, because it would keep me off her back. <laughs> okay. And when you say lifelong, even to the point where years later, when I was, uh, after I co-created Scary Shandling Show and Gilda appeared on the show, now I was her boss and we were collaborating again and um, they thought she was in remission from cancer and then she got sick again and they took it, uh, I remember going to Cedar sinai Hospital in LA to give blood and I'm lying on the gurney and a nurse comes over and hands me a pad and a pen and I said, what's this? And she said, well, Gilda likes to know whose blood she's getting, right, or something like she's having a tough time. And I wrote, Dear Gilda, I knew I'd get some fluid of mine into you one way or another. So that was pretty uh -huh. much the friendship. And yeah. We had a great time, and, and um, we created, you know, I wrote for everybody. I wrote the Samurais for John Belushi, and uh, as you had mentioned uh, earlier, you know, I think before we, we you started rolling, uh, uh, Chico Escuela was a character created by Brian Doyle Murray. Um, which was in one sketch, and then I went to Brian. I said, "Let's, you know, extend the uh, the shelf life of this character." Uh, Jim Bouton uh, was uh, who wrote a book called Ball Four, which exposed a lot of things about uh, the Yankees' locker room when he pitched for them. Was trying to make a comeback. I said, "Why don't we have Chico try to make a comeback?" So we made him a correspondent in Weekend Update. Then we took him down to Florida to film a three-part comeback try uh, with the Mets. And so there was a lot of things that I had a hand in, but I would say percentage-wise, Gilda, you know, Roseanne, Rosanna Dana was, uh, um, came through our um, joint effort, and um, I had a big hand in Emily, Emily Latella, although so did a, a lot of other writers. So um, it, it proved very successful. I've been thinking about Gilda and all the women from the original Saturday Night Live cast a bit the last couple of years as we all sort of reexamine our past and see the biases, you know, hidden and unhidden that existed. I realized that most of the men who were in the cast of Saturday Night Live became movie stars and none of the women who were in the original cast did. Now, I'd forgotten you said Gilda starred in a movie I'm not familiar with called First Family, but... Does it seem now, looking back, that there was this presumption after Chevy hit that the rest of the guys would get their turn and maybe less so that the women would be featured starring in comedies the way a woman who's a breakout star on Saturday Night Live nowadays can reasonably expect to? You know something? That's a wonderful question I would have to think about. Your first family was an ensemble movie that was written and directed by Buck Henry, who was my mentor and uh, who passed away this past uh, December. Um, it was an, he was part of the extended family, and I think that movie. I think Madeline Kahn and Bob Hope, Bob not Bob Hope, Bob Newhart. Um, there was a lot of um, fun people in it. Uh, I think. Oh, I just mentioned Buck when I spoke to Buck about this book, about certain things, certain because I, I wanted to get certain facts right. I think I even put in the book that Buck said there came a point after Animal House and after Meatballs and after certainly after Blues Brothers uh, later on, um, you know, uh, all the Bill Murray movies and, and, and whatever, that there was an expectation that the show 
if you stayed with it long enough, was just a matter of time until you became a movie star, you know. Caddyshack, you know, was born from there. And um, I think, I don't think it was anything other than, and I could be very wrong here, that you get the original women on the in the cast, uh, which is whom your question was about, I think that playing to an audience was where they were most comfortable, okay? As opposed to take after take after take, waiting for the lighting to be done, and, and playing to the crew who were busy putting tape on the floor, you know what I mean, or uh, adjusting Klieg lights or whatever. I think that, because if you look at their backgrounds, you know, Gilda, uh, Second City, and uh, Jane was, um, what was she, the proposition, I think, and uh, Lorraine was Groundlings. And it was improv groups, it was, it, it was, um, and yeah, and even though the guys had that background, I think that, um, you know, they thrived, obviously. Jane Curtin went and did a Kate and Alley, and then she, she did Third Rock from the Sun, you know. So there were successes, uh, you know, the movies that Gilda was in were not successful, uh, really. Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not, maybe one, one or two that she did with Gene Wilder, I, I really can't remember, mm -hmm. but uh, it was an unfamiliar and an uncomfortable medium for her. I had the impression that, no, no, Gilda, I literally was introduced to her through that episode on It's Gary Shandling Show. I was of an age where I hadn't seen the original Saturday Night Live, and she comes out and people are going crazy for this woman. And I'm like, oh, I'm, clearly I'm supposed to know who she <laughs> is. So, yeah. I, so I subsequently went and, and, and bought and read her book. It seems like the, you know, she obviously fell very much into a relationship with Gene Wilder and the movies that they did together seemed almost a bit like the movies that Adam Sandler is accused of doing now, where you get somebody you want to spend time with and you go somewhere to go on a vacation and film some stuff while you're there. Well, the odd thing about the movies she did with Gene, who was her husband, you know, it, it was a curious thing because there was a movie they did together uh, Woman in Red, I think mm -hmm. it's called, okay? Now, this is many, many years ago, but the object of Gene's character's affection, of his lust, of his, his fantasy woman, was Kelly LeBrock, who was drop-dead gorgeous, okay? Gilda was also in that movie, and she played a co-worker of Gene's. Now, he wrote and directed this. And he made her so unattractive. If you look at the shots, they're up from below the face, like through the nostrils, and dressed a real frumpy. And you go, wait a second. Everyone automatically looks frumpy next to Kelly LeBrock. Why go, why did you need to go that far the other way? Why wasn't she allowed just to be Gilda? And there would have been fun and an attraction there and, 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 and it would have lifted it a little bit. As, uh, so I don't, I, in answer to your question, 
I know that from Gilda's standpoint, when she got married to Jean, she thought that finally she would have a personal career and a professional career under you know the same roof. You know what I mean? All the guy would be taken care of. Um, you know, this is one-stop shopping. You know what I mean? And uh, it was ultimately um, uh, pretty disappointing to us. You know, to us meaning everyone who knew her and loved her and say, whoa, 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 wait a second, why isn't Gilda allowed to be Gilda? You know. You were, if I understood correctly, you were at the Dakota with her the night that John Lennon was shot. No, I was at the Dakota that afternoon. My wife, okay. Robin, and I. Uh, um, it was in December, December eighth to be uh, exact, nineteen eighty, and it was a. I want to say it was a week off from SNL. No, you know we had left SNL. We had left SNL in May of nineteen eighty. So this is the following December. And Gilda's mother was in town and asked us if Gilda called and asked if we would come for brunch. And we lived 10, 13 blocks away. We took a walk to the Dakota. And as we're going into the Dakota, it was always a, a, a group of people there with autograph books and cameras, you know. And uh, Robin said, boy, can you imagine living here and every day having to deal with this, if, you know, if you're famous, you know. And we went in, we had uh, brunch, and a couple hours later, we're leaving. And as we're leaving, um, Robin says, oh my God. And I go, what? And she said, she points to a guy, a heavyset guy, earmuffs, glasses. And she says, he was here when we came in. I said, well, obviously the guy has a lot of time on his hands. (laughs) You know, and we went home, and that night, when the news came out that John Lennon was shot and they showed a picture of his assassin, it was that guy. It was really creepy, really, really chilling, you know. There's a joke in the book about, uh, I guess this is a question about the evolving sensibilities of what is and isn't funny nowadays. There's a joke in the book, which I find funny. You said it wasn't, didn't even make it on the air on Saturday Night Live. That is a joke about Anne Frank getting a set of drums for Hanukkah. Well, I... I, <laughs> I which it's it's funny. It's Everybody listening to this just, just laughed, and yet... I would doubt if that would get on the air on Saturday Night Live nowadays, or maybe I'm overthinking. Uh, back then, I don't think the issue, and it was so many years ago, Mike, so uh, I could be very wrong here. Yeah. I, I, I remember that joke. It was a joke written by Rosie Schuster, who had an idea for a sketch about the 10 worst Hanukkah gifts ever. Right. And the worst one, the number one, was the Hanukkah, that Anne Frank got a set of drums. Now, yeah. this is 42, 43 years ago. Uh-huh. I remember the joke um, when I was speaking to Franken. Not only did he remember the joke, he may have put it in his book, okay? Mm-hmm. So it was one of those jokes where we went, holy, wow, I wish I wrote that. God, is that smart. I can't remember why it didn't get on the... It was part of a sketch, and maybe the sketch didn't work. Okay? So I don't remember if there was any objection to the joke as opposed to the sketch doesn't hold up. I would have to ask Rosie. I just don't remember. Okay? Mm -hmm. Now, 
if I had to bet back then, the joke could very well have gotten on the year. I would imagine so. I would imagine so, too. It was the kind of jokes that we did. Yeah, uh, and that's what was allowed. You know? Oh, and I'm not I'm not asking you to to apologize for it. I guess what I'm getting at is we have this balance now between it used to be if it's funny, everything goes sort of consequences be damned because you're you know, as a writer who's still working today, how are we going to strike a balance between being allowed to have fun with things in an absurd way that can barely be construed as harmful with being sensitive to people who are legitimately triggered by things? Oh, you know something that's of highly discussed and wonderful question in that, yeah, I can hearken back, as I'm sure you can, to sure. a time where everybody made fun of everybody else, and then you mm -hmm. went to lunch together, okay? Yes. Now there's such a hypersensitivity to where if you say something which you believe is innocuous, you're not trying to provoke, somebody will get offended, and then you have to backtrack and go, wait a second, how did they make, get to that, out of that? Mm -hmm. What in those words? So it's bending over backwards the other way. It's been going on like that for, for quite a while, for quite a while. It started a number of years ago where guys like Seinfeld and Chris Rock stopped doing colleges because they were given a list of subjects they shouldn't talk about. And I, um, I w my hope is you're talking about a balance, okay? Of course. I, I think that there's a shaking up right now where every hope I have is that ultimately, yeah, maybe there'll be a little bit of a new order, but Jesus, loosen up. You know what I yeah. mean? For the love of God, lighten up. It's Yeah, uh, I... I I hope I, I tend to agree with you, and I hope it feels like there's a bit of a, a purge going on right now, and it's the nature of purges to have excesses, and that hopefully we find our, our way back to the middle. Well, it's the cliche about the pendulum, you know, somewhere in the middle, and maybe there'll be a new middle. I don't know what it's going to be, but I must say that once again, there's a degree of paranoia where people are afraid, people who do what I do, people who do what you do. It's not that we're afraid to open our mouths, but there's a part of our brain that's going, all right, who's going who's gonna to take this and make something out of it? Should I do this? Should I? You know, and it's, it, it's okay, I'm going to give you an example, and, and let's take this and make this a little metaphorical. That stamp joke that I just yes. told. Okay. One of my previous, a book that I had written called Bunny Bunny, which was a... Uh, a love letter to Gilda. It was uh, uh, my way of, and became a play and his talk of bringing the play back to Broadway. It was about my relationship with her over a 14-year uh, sort of love affair. And when I was doing book tour for it, they booked me into a place called the Concord Hotel. Now, in the heyday of the Catskills, the Concord Hotel was the prime place. Everyone wanted to play there. You know, until they built the MGM Grand Hotel in Las Vegas, which I think was 81 or 82, something like that, until they built that place, the Concord Hotel had the biggest nightclub in the country. It seated 3,100 people, okay? All right, 
That's when I was a little boy and the remnants of that era when I was writing for those comics in the early 70s. Add 20 years, 25 years, I'm promoting this book, Bunny Bunny. And I get asked to go to the Concord Hotel and do, you know, as part of my book tour. So I said, fine, I thought it would be nostalgic. I go with my wife, Robin, and in my mind, it's this big place. Now it's musty. Now there's, they give us the presidential suite. God knows what president. <laughs> it looked like a president was assassinated. <laughs> there was cigarette burns in the carpet. The place was mildewy. It was yeah. there. Well, they didn't say American president. Yeah, they didn't say American, so God knows, okay? Right. So... And so this wasn't in the nightclub, of course. It was in one of their convention rooms, and there might have been 300 people, which is a pretty good crowd for book tour. But what they didn't tell me, that it was 300 rabbis, okay? And they're all sitting there, and I don't get nervous when I go in front of a crowd. I'm sweating bullets at this point. Before I'm introduced, and I'm looking around, and these were pretty orthodox rabbis. They had the hats and the and then dark, you know, black coats, and 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 their wives. It was co-ed, okay. But I think the men were on one side, the women were on the other of the aisles. And I know what I'm about to say. I know I'm to tell my story. I know it takes an hour and a half, and I'm going. If I filter out what I normally say in deference to the rabbis. I'll be up there for four minutes. <laughs> well, we'll have said everything, okay? All right. I'm introduced. I get up there, and I start telling my story, taking out what I thought would be offensive. And I'm dying a miserable death. I don't get a snicker from any of those 300 people. Now I get up to the point in my story where I usually would tell that stamp joke, because that was mm -hmm. the joke I gave Lorne, and it was the first on SNL for me, right? I get up to that point, and I see my wife, Robin, in the first row going, no, no, don't. No. <laughs> she looked like a third base coach. No, no, no. Okay. And I, at this point, I'm going, what the hell? I tell that joke. It's the biggest laugh in the history of anything, Okay. And I look at them and I go, you mean I'm allowed to talk this way in front of you? And as one, they're, they're nodding their heads and gave me a hearty yes. Then I tell the rest of my stuff, it was the greatest show in the world, okay? And the only reason I bring it up is there's a certain amount of <clears throat> repression mm -hmm. that I think that things have to come bubbling up eventually. I think. Yes. I think. And I think that this self-censoring is, I understand the nobility of the intention. And I, I don't disagree with anything that's going on, but you can't tie a satirist's hands. This is what we all do. And it's meant as homage. It's meant as a reflection. And it's meant in fun. Okay, obviously there is lines that you're not allowed to cross your choice of words and, 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 you know, all of that stuff. But so my hope is eventually that the new normal, um, what's good about this revolution uh, will be incorporated 
but that we'll be able to start laughing again and uh, just uh, take the cuffs off a little bit, you know? Sure. Comedy is one of the few tools that we have for, as a society, examining taboo things and, and having some catharsis with things that make us uncomfortable. So I, we have I think to be able so. to use it for that as well. I remember Gildy used to say that comedy is about what's wrong with the world. Things that are too short, too fat, too, you know what I mean? It's the things that are askew, you know? We're not ballet dancers, you know? We look at stuff and go, whoa, you know, that's weird. <laughs> Make a joke about it, you know? Uh, I'm running out of time. I'm curious, do you still have Roger Ebert's review of North, a photocopy of it in your wallet? Yes, I do. I don't have my wallet. The wallet's in the other room. <laughs> I believe, I'll take your word for it. Yeah, I do. And... um I, you know, well, look, when he reviewed that movie mm -hmm. and he used the word hate, I think, 11 times, <laughs> um, it was devastating, you know, because I had been protected before then. I was part of a group of writers at SNL and as much of a, a hand as I had in, in the Shandling show, it was Gary's show. Yeah, I co-created it. I produced it. But it was it's Gary Shandling's show. Yes. So I had people to hide behind. This was based on my book, and I wrote the screenplay, and I was I, I, I produced it with Rob Reiner, who directed it. So my ass was <laughs> was pretty much out there. So when it, they attacked the writing of it, um, I it was devastating. It was devastating, and then it took a while for me to get out of my own way to take back the power and go. You know something? This is what we do. This is uh, how we're wired. Uh, and then once you do a product and you put it out there, it's in the hands of a different God. But the, the intent is noble. You, 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 you know, you, you're not purposely writing something that's going to get like 7% on Rotten Tomatoes. Nobody does that, you know. Other things come into play. So, um, yeah, I still carry it with me. I, I, I read from it on TV. I read from it uh, when I do my uh, speaking engagements. And whenever I go into that part of the wallet and I see its frayed little um, <laughs> yellowed uh, edges to, you know, the original re newspaper review, it just yeah. makes me smile. So we're, in case people don't know, we're talking about the movie that you, as you said, uh, wrote the book and then wrote the film of uh, North, Elijah Wood, Bruce Willis. I find it interesting. I'd never seen the movie. I watched it a few days ago. I loved reading Roger Ebert. He's the only uh, destination movie reviewer for me because um, he, he had a way with words. Even if it was a movie that I would never see, I enjoyed sure. hearing what he had to say about them. Didn't always agree with him. I can truthfully, honestly say, I wouldn't bring it up if I didn't uh, truly mean this. I don't agree with him. It's not my favorite movie that I've ever seen, but hate is so far away from the way that I feel about it. Why do you think he got to a point where with this movie, he would still 10 years later bring it up as this this? He made movie. it the title of his, comp of, of his <laughs> book, okay? Yeah. And it was, um, I don't know what... You know, it, it could have been, look, Rob's previous movie was A Few Good Men. Mm -hmm. I don't know how that was reviewed. I don't know if Roger Ebert liked it or didn't like it. And A Few Good Men's huge success made him feel like he wasn't, you know, that he was proven wrong. I have no idea because this was so personal. It was so personal. I think... I'm not sure if it was, maybe it was Ebert. It's, there was some reviewers, why it started out, why in God's name did Rob Reiner do this movie? Okay, so 
I don't know, but it was, it was something interesting about what you just said, uh, Mike, because, you know, you got, there were movie reviewers back then like Pauline Kael for The New Yorker and, and, and if you did, uh, uh, Vincent Camby, if you didn't agree with them, that was one thing, but there was an intelligence to the writing. There was a knowledge. They were able to allude to movies in the past and technique and, and, and eras and whatever. And so you learn something about it, may not have agreed with their, like you said, their verdict, but you were reading something. This, and Roger Ebert was one of those guys, as you just said, you'd read him because he's an intelligent reviewer. There was something even for him that he said, to hell with me. Mm -hmm. And whatever erudition he had, I honestly don't know. I don't know. But as in the book was, I, 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 I mentioned that I ran into him years later. I, um, I had written a book and I was in Chicago on book tour and I always wondered what it would be like if I ran into him. And this was like 10 years later and in this restaurant I was in, he was at a table over there and he was with some people and he was wearing this oversized sweater that had all the autumn colors with burnt orange and gold and puke green and it was patches and and he gets up and he starts going to the men's room and I'm almost like a witness to myself it's as if it was an out-of-body thing I excused myself from whoever I was having lunch with I said I'll be right back and I start following Roger Ebert I have no idea what I'm going to do when I catch up with him. There was a part of me that's just going, I hope it doesn't result in bloodshed, okay? No cops. He goes to the men's room. I follow him to the men's room. We're both at the sink, and we're washing our hands, and there's that mirror on the other side of the vanity on that wall. And I go, Roger? And he looks up, and you can see he's trying to place me, doesn't quite note. So I go, Alan's why Bell? And the blood drained from his face. <laughs> and I just said, Roger, I just have to tell you that I hate, 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 hate that sweater you're wearing. And he took a second and he smiled, I smiled, we both started laughing and we shook hands, you know. But for me to get from being so devastated where I wouldn't get off the couch for a few weeks after reviews like that. That one in particular because he was the premier guy to the point where I carry it in a wallet, I read it, and I made that joke to him. Yeah, it was a sign of maturity perhaps, but what a journey that was. Well, you've made it out the other side. You've had, you know, all sorts of successes uh, since then. You've seen Milton Berle's penis in your career and Farrah Fawcett's breasts. How many people can say that? Yeah, I, I hit the quinella there. You're absolutely right. Um, <laughs> it was, you know, I didn't even realize that. You know, you, you know how the, Milton Berle would show his dick to anybody, and, and, and whether they wanted to or not, as he did with me. He, he took out this anaconda, and I'm going... Oh my God, you know, I, I, there was a story that um, there was a comedian named Dick Sean had walked into the uh, steam room at the Friars Club and Milton was in the steam room naked, you know, in a, and uh, when Dick Sean saw, first saw Milton naked and he saw his dick, 
Dick Schwann said it first. I thought Milton was there with his son. Okay, <laughs> so so those those were the jokes we used to write about when he was at. A, I used to write for Friars Roast. Those were the a lot of the Dick jokes were about Milton Berle's penis because it was so renowned. Okay, so he showed me his dick and he showed it to anybody. I mean, uh, you know, it's funny in doing the research for this book, a lot of people have said to me, oh, he showed you his dick too. It's not like I was the only one. There was nothing special about me. <laughs> he probably just finally got to the Z's, you know, on his dick this playlist. And then years later, when I'm doing a, um, a show uh, with uh, Farrah Fawcett, and she picked up her shirt, and she showed me her chest. Okay, I wrote that in that chapter. It was my editor. Okay, it was my editor, a guy named Jameson Stoltz, when he sent me back the pages with the edits in it, he had said, how many people can say that they saw these two things? And I'm going, you're right, you know what I mean? I didn't couple them together until it was pointed out. And um, yeah, yeah, now, now I wear it like a badge. <laughs> yeah, well, everything else from here on out is, uh, is gravy. Uh, thank yeah, you no, for no, your- we're, we're on the downside, the other side of <laughs> now. But you're still going. What's going on with the movie uh, here today? Billy Crystal, Tiffany Haddish. I'm assuming the events of the last couple of months have gotten in the way somewhat with the original plan. Oh, yeah. The original plan it was the Cannes Film Festival, which didn't happen. Right. Mm. And uh, it, it was a movie that um, I had seen. I flew out to L.A. where it was screened at a theater in Pasadena. So three, four hundred people were there. And it, the audiences were laughing and crying. Everything we wanted them to do, Tiffany Haddish and Billy's relationship is magic. The whole movie works the way we always hoped it would. So now the movie, um, I think Billy is just dubbing a couple of things, but it's, you know, we thought it would come out in the fall, you know? And then this happens. I don't know what its fate is as to where it's going to land. Having seen it, play in front of a big audience, we know that it's best that those are the kinds of emotions you want to share with a small community of people. To have that communal kind of laughing together and feeling sad together and, and crying together, whatever. So um, I, don't, I think that there's a, gonna be a, a, there's a decision that may be very imminent as to, uh, is it going to wait? Or what our theater is going to be like? Or is it going to go to Netflix or, or Amazon? That I don't know. But it's something that uh, Billy directed and the two of us wrote and um, are very, very proud of and have high hopes for because it works. And I say that objectively, so I'm as curious as anyone as to when you'll see it. In the meantime, uh, your your latest book is the memoir, Laugh Lines, My Life, Helping Funny People Be Funnier. The book is available. People can order the audio book now. Thank you so much for your time. I mispronounced your name at the top. I'm not going to do it at the end. Thank you so much, Alan Zweibel. There you go. Don't worry about it. Um, uh, thank you, very, uh, Mike. It's been, uh, these were great questions. It was a great discussion. Thanks for having me. 